Welcome to the 21st Century Physio Podcast, helping you bring your practice into the 21st century with the latest technology news, research reviews, and easy-to-implement practice tips. Now, here's your host, Stephen King. All right, guys, welcome to the 21st Century Physio Podcast. We've got a massive episode here today. We've got the kettlebell physio, Neil May, a guy who I first met oh, probably four years ago, one of my first uh, Mac courses. The first time that I saw him, he was actually 10 metres tall. You know, it's unbelievable. I walked in through the uh, centre that we were uh, running the course at, and there he is, his big face uh, up on the um, outside of the building. So it was a really good way to meet him, and I, he made an impression on me that day. I knew that he, uh, he had some special things to bring to the industry, and uh, I think you'll be pretty amazed with some of the stuff that he's uh, done in career and he's got going forward. So thanks for joining us today, Neil. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> thanks for that welcome. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Is, is it still up? I've got to ask first before we get started. It is. Funnily yeah. enough, uh, my professor sent me a, a text photo of that only a few weeks ago. He was up yeah. in Brisbane, and randomly walking down that road and saw me. Yeah. <laughs> a little embarrassing. Yeah. You, you can't, can't miss you. You can see you from uh, no, suburbs away. So. It's huge. Now, Neil, so obviously for the listeners who haven't come across your work before, you're quite prominent on social media, but do you want to give them a bit of a rundown about yourself? Oh, where would you like me to start um, with my physio? Yeah, let's start with your physio journey, I guess. Um, I, I went into physio as a mature student. So I know when a lot of other people have been asked about physio, they've, they've usually had a, a sporting background and experience being with a physio and them helping. And, and that wasn't my experience at all. Um, I had a career change when I moved here to Australia in 2004 and ended up um, training as a personal trainer then, so I was 30 then, and then moved into to manual therapy where I spent several years, and it was the transition into manual therapy and the interest in anatomy and, and that area that, that motivated me to go on to, to uni. So I uh, came to Bond in 2000, end of 2007, um, went through exercise science and then the, the physiotherapy program here, graduated 2012. That's my brief physiotherapy journey. And so when you go back and you look where you started um, as a personal trainer, you went through some, uh, I guess, more massage, you know, myotherapy-based stuff um, before the physio. You know, what do you think that that, you know, that added to your physiotherapy or what do you think, would you recommend other people, do, you know, go through that process? Oh, there's lots of questions there. Um, the, I, I think it's invaluable having that personal training background for, for lots of different reasons, um, exercise fundamentally. And I started training when I was in gyms when I was 16, so it would be 91. Um, and I'd always been involved with sport. My, my dad was heavily involved in sport and that, it was just a part of my life. And fundamentally, I think that's, that's continued to, what's, to be my driver and what's motivated me. So it was a natural, I had a big life event in 2004 and changed careers completely different. My, my last job was at the, the BP refinery in Brisbane. Um, wow. As a project manager and business analyst there, so completely different. Went went into sales very briefly, didn't like that, and then personal training, and that was the exposure to anatomy and movement and, and exercise, which I was comfortable with and familiar with. So, I think in that respect, the personal training is invaluable because I, there's this perception that when you go through exercise science, you're you're coming out as a personal trainer, and that's not necessarily the case. And then because that's often a prerequisite to going on to physio, 
they presume that you've already done all of that exercise, but that might not have been the case. And then you don't do it again through, through physiotherapy. So I think those that have that personal training background and the experience in and around exercise and working with people that are doing exercise, I think are an, an advantage when they go out into physiotherapy private practice. And I think the same could be said for, for manual therapy as well. Um, we used to train a certificate for and a diploma of remedial massage and some of the students that I had trained there came through Bond and um, two of them are actually my classmates. And oh, wow. the, you, you notice a difference in not so much manual handling, but their, their comfort with people, um, their, their comfort hands-on with, with people and building that therapeutic relationship, if you want to call it, through, through touch, I think was noticeably easier for them to transition to because they'd had that background. So there's definite advantages to, to having had that. Yeah, and I think that's you know, a similar journey that I found as well, going through a similar process. I guess while we're on the topic of manual therapy, it's you know quite controversial. There's uh, there's different you know there's two or three different camps out there at the minute. Uh, you know the side that says you know don't do any manual therapy. You see a patient once, go on your way. To the other guys who are you know doing the traditional stuff that we you know we learn through physiotherapy. Where, given that you've had a background working in that type of industry, teaching you know manual therapy. Uh, and being you know a physiotherapist you know how do you find that where's the balance there what are your thoughts oh another <laughs> interesting question and it that, that's been a really challenging journey for me because that's where I started that's what I was taught that's what I was teaching and that's the only framework at that point that I had that with my reference people came in we took them through a general musculoskeletal screen as it, as it was called and it was it was based on an osteopathic framework so we used um, Greenman's principles of modern manual medicine um, and we quote unquote diagnosed based on movement disorders and um, dysfunctions and, and we treated like that and I didn't know any different then um, fast forward several years you, you know differently and I, I definitely moved away from that and I, I found it very difficult to practice as a physiotherapist, but be perceived as either a, a manual therapist or um, a massage therapist. It's like I've, I've done that. That was my training and my experience, and my qualifications. I've moved on and I've done something different and I don't want to continue doing the same thing. I don't feel there's a need to do that. And I, I wanted to be perceived differently. So when I opened up my practice, we, I made a conscious decision to employ massage therapists and employ massage uh, myotherapists so that um, I was perceived differently by the people that were, were coming through the door. So I, I made a, a personal choice to distance myself from manual therapy. That wasn't the, to say that I didn't use it, but that was the perception that I wanted to, to give. And was that a you know personal thing based on you know your understanding of the the research or the felt that your skill set had evolved and moved past that or was it just a purely an enjoyment factor for you? Um, the the research um, I I went through something called the Skills Finder profile in two thousand six and and learner came out as top. So I'm intrinsically motivated by the process of learning. It's not being driven to be right, but driven not to be wrong. And um, I, I've spent, I think since 2005, it's just been one thing after another in terms of qualifications and, and, and learning. And I feel like I've, I've learned 
so much more than what I had back then in 2006, seven and eight. And I just, I can't do the same things with the same beliefs and, and rationale. Um, and I can't justify that. I think one way that I, I put myself under pressure is that I almost imagine that someone like Greg Lehman sitting in the, in the corner of the room and watching what I'm doing. And if I can justify what I'm doing to someone like Greg, who I would um, view as a, a peer, then I feel comfortable. And if I can't, then I won't do it. So that's, yes. I guess, the, the line that I've, I've taken. Um, even the, this morning, just before this, this uh, chat, I, was, I noticed one of Greg's posts from yesterday about the kinesiopathological model of, of, of care and treatment. So yeah, it's been, it's been a difficult journey shifting away from that and having a, a different understanding of what's actually happening and why I might be doing something and the potential for me to, to make change and what that change might actually be or not. So yeah, it's, it's been difficult. And so with that understanding, do you think there's still a place for manual therapy in physiotherapy today? I guess that depends how you define manual therapy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I want to stay on the fence with this one. <laughs> I, I, I think there's a, a place for manual handling and putting your hands on people and making them sort of feel safe and comfortable particularly where there's potentially pain or fear of movement, all of those, those beliefs. So I'm very much, I guess, in the, the Peter O'Sullivan camp of cognitive functional therapy and the role that manual therapy, however you define that, plays within that framework. Um, I, I have definitely moved away from the um, operator model of the, the treatment table or plinth being the centerpiece and somebody laying down on the, the table and me doing something to them with the intent or belief from their part that I'm fixing or changing something fundamentally about their, their body. Um, so yes and no, there's a place, but how, how and why you might be doing something and the narrative behind it, I think is really important. Yeah, definitely. Very much so. So you obviously went out with a purpose when you started Pride um, Physiotherapy, yep. your, your physio um, practice. Uh, with a purpose to you know do something different, um, try and change the industry. You know, with that thought process, um, you know, how did you go about setting up that practice around that? To to answer the question, yes, there was definitely a purpose, and one of our business bylines was um, doing things differently or changing the face of physiotherapy. We had two, um, and I, I guess to 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 step back a little bit, I'd I'd gone in, I'd graduated, I'd gone into private practice, so working for somebody else. And it was a job that I'd had lined up for four years and it, it clinically, it didn't go the way that I wanted. And I, I'd moved away from that within four months, um, ended up going back to the, the teaching role that I'd had and was given an opportunity to develop the, the myotherapy course here in Queensland. And um, when I started, I didn't realize or appreciate that, that the development of that course formed the business model for Pride Physiotherapy. So what we were teaching and delivering, um, the, the, the ethos and the, the ethics behind it, the way that we were pitching manual therapy to the myotherapy students, that, that turned into a, a work, Pride was a working model of the, the myotherapy program at, at Q Academy here. So unbeknownst to me at the time, I'd spent two years building this model. Um, and then we, I'd spent 12 months on the, the business plan preparing for this and wanting to do things differently, having a, a holistic approach to, to health, hence why it was called Pride Physiotherapy Nutrition. 
we wanted to be very exercise focused and, and get people in and develop more of a community and um, get people engaged around activity and education and kettlebells just happened to be that tool and it just didn't turn out the way that we we planned um, and then that goes off on a, a different path so well t- t- um, take us down that path so so what did you learn along along the way uh, I guess because I, I find this story, I yeah, I find this story, you know, really, really intriguing. You know, I loved yeah. reading your post. Um, yeah, for the people who listen, you know, so Pride's obviously finished now. You're now doing a PhD, yeah. so you, you've moved on to bigger and better things. But you know, I think the thing that I really admired from you is, you know, reading the post that you put up after you know it closed down, and then some of those yeah. learnings you had along the way. I think there were some really insightful things for you know physiotherapists all around the world to take from that. Yeah. Oh, uh, there was, there was so, so many, um, whether it was the, that was the first business that I'd run. I'd, I'd had a business and management degree. I finished that in 96. I, and I've worked, I've been fortunate to work with some pretty savvy business people. So I didn't go into, I didn't feel like I, I went into it ignorant to how the world worked. Um, we spent a lot of time preparing the business plan. We picked the site very strategically based on the population here on the Gold Coast and the location in Southport and just nothing, nothing went to plan. I, I, I jumped in with, with both feet. I was absolutely convinced that the, the model that we wanted to implement that we believed wholeheartedly would work without a shadow of a doubt was going to work. So we had a best case and a worst case business plan. Um, even right from the outset, the, it was quite a, an upmarket area and the owners of the, the premise required us to engage a designer and an architect. So we spent 10 grand just on the architect because that was a requirement. And it's just, it's a lot of money that we hadn't planned at the outset before the doors had even opened. Um, and it just, it felt like a lot of those, those things, the, the people that we expected to come through the doors never came, whether it was referrals from GPs, people coming out of um, hospital post-surgery, um, the expectations of the, the service that we were providing, either from the people walking through the doors, the GPs that may or may not have been referring to us, just everything didn't go to plan. Um, I'd gone into it, we'd bet everything on that. So we'd, we'd put the house on, on the line, taken out a bank loan and signed a lease for three years. So I was, I was in it for the long haul. And up until I think June 2017, I, I was committed to doing that regardless of the outcome. And, um, and it was, the writing was on the, the wall pretty soon on that the model that we were wanting to run that was predominantly around exercise and revenue um, largely coming from group classes wasn't going to work and we, we changed back to a more traditional model of physiotherapy um, but we just couldn't get um, foot traffic through so every, every week from day dot we were trying different things um, I, I'll give you a good example there were I think 50, 54 GPs and six local hip and knee surgeons so with the GPs, I'd approached them and said, look, if you've got patients that fit into any one of these four categories, I think it was non-specific low back pain, osteoarthritis, obesity, and I can't remember what the fourth one was. We said, if you've got a patient on your books, we will take them on for two months at, at no cost. 
because we thought that was going to be the best way that we could demonstrate that we could deliver a good service, a good quality service. And of those 50 plus GPs, we had one GP refer a couple who didn't turn up. I think they turned up for the initial appointment and then they just, they just didn't turn up. So we thought that's not going to help you or us. And then one young girl that had depression and anxiety and that was it from 50 odd GPs. So we, we couldn't give our services away. Um, same story with the, the surgeons. I even tried to um, get one local surgeon who's operated on me twice, engaged in a bit of a, a clinical trial with people that had arthritic knees that weren't suitable candidates for surgery. And I, I pitched this idea about kettlebells because I knew that there was some data that um, demonstrated a doubling of body weight through the knees with a, a kettlebell exercise with no impact and limited range. And I thought, that, that makes sense. We'll, we'll take somebody on and we'll do the same thing. And again, we just couldn't get people through the door. So ultimately, it's, the model wasn't financially viable. Um, we'd picked an expensive area, the rent was high, and it, um, it, it got to a point where we dug ourselves into such a, a big financial hole that we had to just pull the plug and, and walk away. So I did. And this is a pretty uh, pretty common story, I think. You know, a lot of people start you know start practices and don't realise the the overheads involved with with those, I guess. Uh, yeah. Especially some of those uh, unexpected costs, which I think you mentioned with the architect and stuff. There's always those other little things. Were there any other sort of you know, each apart from obviously trying to get those people in through the door, was there any other things you learned along the way, you know, through that journey? Have you got a particular topic in mind? Well, Lockie, if you're talking about, you know, you went to more towards a membership-based model, why, why do you think that didn't necessarily work as well? I think that's, that's perception. Um, yeah. the, I, I didn't want... My experience of people um, being referred from the GP on, in Australia, the extended primary care plans, was, was not a positive one. And I, and I actively didn't want to for that to be our, our predominant market. Um, so it wasn't toward, it wasn't until toward the end that I started approaching the GPs and, and that was a real eye opener. My, my wife's a GP, so I should have, I should have had some input on that. <laughs> but I remember having a meeting with a, it would have been eight or nine GPs at a large local practice. And I was astounded that they didn't associate me with exercise. So any of their patients that they felt would benefit from some form of uh, physical active exercise based intervention they were sending to an exercise physiologist down the road. So we would have never have seen them. Um, and I created a recent meme on this. The, um, I remember one of the GPs asking me if I, if I did any advanced stuff like dry needling. So that, that was my experience of the GP's expectation. Um, because the practice was set up, so we had, uh, you came through the doors, there's a small reception area, three treatment rooms, and then 80 square meters of open plan gym floor space. We didn't have a lot of equipment because kettlebells was the thing. So we had kettle, a lot of kettlebells there, and then a large rack at the back. Um, we had no barbells and bumper plates because there just wasn't space for it, but we used the rack for different things. But when people walked through the door, they saw this and it didn't look like a physiotherapy practice. It didn't look like the norm. And we would often get asked, um, is this a CrossFit box? Do you do CrossFit here? Or they would see the, the rowers standing up in the corner and, and ask about Pilates. And people would come in and they would look confused because it didn't fit their expectation of what a physio was, despite the fact that it said physiotherapist out the front. 
Um, and the, we were very close to a, a 24 hour gym. Their personal trainers are busy. And I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to change tact here and I'm going to make it a lot more obvious that we want to engage people in physical activity. So I'm going to use the personal training avenue. So had this large two and a half meter square banner plastered on the front wall outside that said personal training with a physiotherapist. The perception being that if people wanted personal training, then there would be more value in having that with somebody that was also a personal trainer. And, and that just didn't fit either. So we didn't get people coming in wanting personal training because they'll go to a personal trainer for that. So I felt like we were getting crippled in all directions. Um, I'd, I'd picked a tool that was unfamiliar with people. So they didn't know what kettlebells were, or if they did, they had no real interest in them. Um, so there wasn't a market of people wanting to engage in the, the style of exercise. We'd had people coming in wanting to do Pilates and we'd have to send them off down the road because that's where the reformers were. Um, so I'd, I'd taken a risk and it, and it hadn't paid off in, in lots of different ways. Um, I think the big take from that, people have often asked, would I do it again? And the answer would be yes, if... Um, it wasn't dependent on me having to make money to pay the bills. So I, I often used to stand in the practice and, and feel really proud of what we had created and what we wanted to achieve and the way that we were doing. I felt really proud with, with that. Um, so it was disappointing that it hadn't worked and I would, I would definitely do it again. Um, and I'd like to do it again. I, I hope that at, at some point after the PhD, I'm able to to do something similar because my interest has always been population health and um, behaviour change around non-communicable diseases. So I, I hope that I can do something like that. But our fixed overheads were 10 grand a month. Um, and if there's going to be that financial pressure, then then I, I wouldn't do it. Um, so my, my my advice to people would be to if you're going to go into it, do something where your overheads are minimal to start with and then build up. From yeah. There. I think that's pretty sound advice there. You brought up an interesting point, I guess that, you know, GPs didn't associate physiotherapy with exercise. You know, yep. do you, do you see that being a big problem going forward for, you know, physios coming out who are being taught more, you know, excellent and exercise based approach? I, 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 yeah, I think that is a challenge. Um, I used to have conversations with my, my wife about the business because she was a, a co-director, but not actively involved on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and she never really understood why I was doing what I was doing. It, it was, it was like the, the, the concept was confusing to her and that, that's my wife, a kettlebell instructor and a, and a partner in the business. So that should have been a flag. I think here in Australia, it's really challenging with the accredited exercise physiologists. Um, because they're naturally now the, the go-to. Um, Professor Greg Gass that set up the program here at Bond had this vision of exercise physiologists or exercise scientists as, as we were when we went through the program, going on and doing the postgraduate physio, becoming this ultimate physiotherapist that was the, the go-to for exercise prescription. And, and that hasn't materialised here. That's, that's not the emphasis of the, the course at all. And um, I, I think we've, we've lost that, that market share of, of exercise. And I, I don't think we are viewed by the general public as the, the go-to person for 
for exercise. I think it's very much still manual therapy. So, so what do you think the future of education is heading for physiotherapy, given that you're obviously heavily involved uh, up there at Bond and, and doing your PhD, doing some teaching? You know, what um, changes are we going to see over the next 10, 15 years? There's always change. Mm. I, I don't know where it's going to go. Um, and my only experience, obviously, here is, is at Bond. I, I do ask what's happening elsewhere. Um, this year, for example, up, up until literally this semester with the, the current um, first-year students, it's the first time that a contemporary understanding of pain science has started to become integrated into what's being delivered in the classroom. And it's still a long, long way off where I think other programs might have it. Um, so we, we've, we've definitely got a, a very long way to go in, in. It's really hard, I guess. I, I spend a lot of time looking at, at what's happening on social media and, and what people are saying and doing. And um, I know Jack Chu's talked about this. You get stuck in this echo chamber and you think that the whole is your perception of it. And, and it's, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I, I hope the, the programs will change quicker than they probably will. Um, I'd like to see more of a, a shift toward, um, as Sandy Hilton said, um, having pain be the air that you, you breathe. And un, an under, contemporary understanding of pain and, and pain science and, and how that influences the interactions that you have with people, whether it's in a hospital setting or an outpatient private practice setting. Um, and, and pain being at the, the forefront and everything else fitting ar around it uh, and us being defined by how we think, not what we, not what we do. But I think that's realistically probably a long way, long way off. Yeah, look, it definitely is moving. I know when I went through the UNISA program, you know, they had, you had the Noi group, Dave and Lorimer there teaching the cutting yeah. edge pain stuff. But I guess that integration was the thing that, you know, wasn't there, which that was a while ago now. Hopefully that's changed. But in the next room, you'd be going in and you'd be doing really specific, you know, grade two pavements to try and, uh, you know, fix the uh, fix the facet joint, I guess. So there was a bit oh. of a misunderstanding, oh, you know, um, a lack of integration between some of those, you know, cutting edge thoughts that they're teaching and some yeah. of the application in practice. And that's really challenging because you, you get students learning one thing and then they learn something else which completely contradicts it. And it's difficult. It, when you're a student, you, you want black and white because you just want, you want an answer and you want to understand things. And it creates such a conflict when, um, when people like me as a pain in the ass, I, I'm in the, the tute room, tute rooms with a small group of students and I'm feeding this, they, these, these papers and this information, which conflicts with what they're being told elsewhere. And it's just, I understand that that's not helpful, but I don't feel comfortable not speaking up. Um, even last week, we're, we're looking at upper cross syndrome. I've, I've been asked to help out in a class um, with the sacroiliac joint in 10 days time. Um, it, it's difficult. It's just, it's a big, big, slow moving ship. Yeah. It's going to take a, a while to turn it around. Yeah, definitely. I think there's some positive things coming forward. So I'm going to ask you, why kettlebells? Good question. Um, I was thinking about this when, when I first saw them and it would have been, I don't think I had even seen a kettlebell prior to 2008 and I would have actively avoided them. And I know I actively avoided them like the plague until 2012. Um, I attended a FMS course down in Melbourne, Andrew Reed's place um, at the end of 2012. And there were predominantly personal trainers there and within the functional movement systems, the, the Grey Cook 
program, they used kettlebells within a lot of their corrective exercise prescription. And there were exercises being done there that the personal trainers were doing that they were comfortable with that I was struggling with. I'd either never seen or if I was trying them, they were just difficult to do. And that made me feel uncomfortable. You know, that first time you've ever seen somebody lay down on a bench with two dumbbells and they're shaking and wobbly. I felt like a fish out of water with, with dumbbells and sorry, with, with the kettlebells. And I, I heard the messages and it, it just struck a chord with me. And I thought, I, I like what I see. I don't understand this. I don't get it. I don't know how to do it. So I'm going to, to jump in with both feet and, and um, go through the, the training program, the RKC training program at that point. So I signed myself and my wife up. <laughs> we trained for eight months and, and then went through the, the, uh, the RKC course in, I think, October, September, October 2013. Fantastic. And that's all I've done ever since. So since the beginning of 2013, I've, I've moved away from the traditional um, barbell gym program, which I'd done from 91 and kettlebells is pretty much all I've done since plus body weight exercise. And some pretty, pretty big kettlebells at that from some of those videos yeah. you see on social media. Yeah. It's uh, pretty crazy. So when did you decide to, to go with the name, the kettlebell physio? You've obviously, as you say, gone full, uh, full head in. Uh, when did you decide that to create that brand? That was very much a, a strategic marketing choice. Um, people look at my surname and they don't know how to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> it's easier to remember the kettlebell physio than it is Neil May. So, and, and the logo was fairly distinctive. So it was a very clear marketing decision to go with the, the kettlebell physio. That would have been 2014. I just decided on that. And we were already planning for pride physiotherapy at that point. Um, so yeah, it was just, just planning ahead and, and, and marketing more than anything else, something that was easily identifiable. I decided I jumped onto the, the kettlebell bandwagon at that point and, and I just saw it being, I guess, fundamental to, to where I was heading. And I don't think I appreciated it at that point where it might end up. <laughs> <laughs> well, doing a PhD now on kettlebells. Tell us a little, a little bit more about that. Yes. Um, I get, I, when I left uni in 96, I, I swore that I'd never go back again. I did a business and management degree, no interest in it at all. Um, and then it was the, the anatomy and exercise that really got me interested. And it, I just, I loved my time coming through exercise science and physio. I, I enjoyed the process of learning. But when I finished a PhD was not even on the radar. Um, I, had a, I had so much downtime, funnily enough, at Pride that I, I was spending my time learning and and getting more familiar with what was being published and following people and watching and listening. And, and it was that, that, that made me think I'd, I'd actually quite like to be involved in research. Why the kettlebells is that there was nothing. I, I was promoting this idea of um, evidence informed practice or evidence based practice. And there was nothing. So here's me as a physio promoting evidence based practice with no evidence to support my own practice using kettlebells. It was all, theories and, and and that made me feel uncomfortable um when i made the decision to close the practice it the the ball was already rolling i had um i had some ideas and I, because i had come through this program here i was in contact with um the the staff so it was easy to engage them in the process of having a conversation and and, and asking but i i didn't know what was i didn't know what was involved with a phd i put my hand up and completely ignorant and again got that wrong <laughs> so the, the the 
there's a lady that came through the the the, the practice we used to well, i used to run two um workshops in the morning so we had a kettlebell class two in the morning two in the afternoon um six days a week essentially and our most regular visitor was 68 she had two prosthetic knees she could swing a 40 kilo bell she could row 24 28 she was amazing and anecdotally she had she recanted two instances where she had been at home and tripped and avoided a fall and had specifically come in and attributed avoiding the fall to her change in function through the the program so the initial idea was falls risk looking at improving um, the lower limb strength and physical function and power of older adults to reduce falls risk so that's where it started and that's that's why older older adults and that's eventually where where we'll end up hopefully later this year and what do you think kettlebells you know make so much of a difference or you know are so beneficial to that compared to some other training tools Good question. And um, contrary to popular belief, and I, I know I, I push this so much on the page, but it's, it's very much tongue in cheek. The kettlebell is no better than anything else. There are some things that you can do with a kettlebell that you can't do with a dumbbell or a, a barbell, but vice versa. It's, it's just a load. Um, the, the reason why kettlebells, I, I feel, are a, a useful tool is that they're small. They're relatively cheap to buy and they're quite easy to learn. Um, there's a limited number of exercises um, that produce quite a can produce quite a good practical outcome. So, little Mrs. Smith, that's 70 year old, 70 years old, is not going to have a barbell and bumper plates in her house. But it's easy for that person to acquire a kettlebell and have it tucked away. Um, the the program that I'm going to be running or the trial that I'm going to be running is uh, very pragmatic. So I'm going to be pushing people as hard as they're prepared to go, but we're only using a, a deadlift and a swing. Um, I know uh, Peter O'Sullivan's used this, this metaphor about brushing your teeth. If people come in and they're in, in pain, he asks them if they, they brush their teeth and they say, yes, of course. And he says, well, why? And the response is, well, because it's good for my teeth and my gums. They do it because they know that it's healthy. So, the the idea is if there's a, a, a simple exercise that somebody can do independently um, at home that's safe, that is with a piece of equipment that's easy to use, it's cheap, it's portable, and they can integrate that into their life as they were brushing their teeth. So whether it's doing 10 deadlifts before they brush their teeth or swings or whatever it might be, if they can integrate that and get a noticeable significant objective improvement in function that reduces their risk of falls or whatever it might be then for, for me that that seems like a worthwhile intervention because the, the stats on older adults and the, the the potential negative consequences of aging are, are significant and costly so it's more it's just a tool it's an easy tool it's not that kettlebells are better than anything else but they're quite cheap and convenient yep and i think it's a, it's a great philosophy there i think uh, I love the analogy, you know, like brushing your teeth. So the the deadlift and the swing would be some of the earlier exercises. If you know, if there's some physios listening looking to get into kettlebells, they might start to look at with their patients and clients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I know with the 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 hard style training program that I went through, there's, there's six fundamentals, and you can use bits of those the bits of those those six: so swing, clean, press, squat, snatch, and a get up. Um, so that 
older lady with her two prosthetic knees, getting up and down off the floor was quite challenging for her. And it, it took her 12 months to be able to do a, a, a get up. And she managed to do that with, with a weight. Um, for, for me, and, and I've, I've presented about this, there's, a, there's something called a floor transfer test in a geriatric population and it's recommended for older, older adults because it's a safety issue. If somebody falls over and they're, they're on the floor, they need to be able to get themselves back up again. And essentially the Turkish get up, if you dispense with the weight, is just a very structured way of getting from lying on the ground to standing back up again. It's a, it's a transfer from lying to sitting, sitting to kneeling, kneeling to standing, and that's it. So um, I think people see the Turkish get up and see people doing crazy things with it and think, how is that functional? Why is that useful? I'd never do that. But if you scale it right back to no weight, let's just transfer from getting off the floor to sitting up in a chair or standing upright and then going about your day, then it, it just takes on a, a different perspective. And, um, and the way that it's taught and because it's structured, I, I feel it's a relatively useful objective measure in some instances, um, looking at joint range and, and function and capacity, even somebody's ability to roll from laying on their back to propped up on the elbow, you can, you can identify upper limb and shoulder girdle issues in some people where they just don't have the capacity to depress their shoulder sufficiently to support their body weight. And then there's this, this sequence of events that people go through. And if you know what normal is, it, it's obvious when something doesn't work the way that it typically does. And, and then it makes you think why, and is that something that I need to take any notice of or not? And if, if it can be changed and improve somebody's function, then then that might be something that I address. So for, for me, the, the, the get up turned into a bit of a, a physical movement assessment as well. Interesting. I think the, uh, the movement is the test and the test is the movement or the exercise, I guess. So yeah. good philosophy there. Now you mentioned you are uncomfortable, um, you know, with not having the evidence there for what you're doing in your practice. Yep. How do you advise people out there? Because this is a really common thing that I encounter. You know, people almost get that paralysis by analysis. They sort of tend to overanalyze things, and then when they look, you know, that answer for that specific thing just isn't there. How do you, what do you say to your students? You know, when you're teaching. Uh, that's <laughs> that's really that's a, another difficult question as well because I don't. I I feel the more I've learned, the more ignorant I've become. So the more you know, the more you, you don't know. And um, I, I've, I feel like I've been in that situation where I've been almost paralyzed by being uncomfortable knowing that I don't have the answers. I know when I first went into private practice, I, I used to set myself up for failure because every person that worked, walked through the door, I felt like um, I needed to give them a, a diagnosis and have them walk out that door feeling better quote unquote fixed so and that just doesn't happen half the time you don't know exactly why and they don't walk out feeling 100 percent better so i and i was having to deal with the the feelings of that but i i think there's a point where you almost come full circle um if you if you pay attention to what's being published and what people are talking about you become a lot more comfortable with being uncomfortable and and saying, I don't know. And that pressure of feeling like you need to be doing things correctly does lift because there isn't necessarily a correct way of doing something. 
Um, you could have three different practitioners in three different professions all working on the same person and they might all get that person better or help them significantly. Um, so th th that's definitely been a, a shift. I, I do feel quite uncomfortable from a knowledge point of view because I feel like I, I want to know and, and I'm very well aware that I don't. So that's been difficult, but um, what can you do other than, than stay current? I'd rather be current and uncomfortable than, than 10 years ago still doing what I was doing or doing what I was doing 10 years ago and ignorant. And I get the impression. That, <laughs> and I get the impression that's a big reason, you know, for the kettlebell physio and a lot of the social media stuff you do that helps you stay yeah. current and engage with people. You know, um, you know, thinking both similarly but also you know very different as well. Yeah. Well, when you say engage, I, I actively don't engage with people very much on on Facebook in particular um, because. Too often, and I've talked about this in the last couple of um, days in that, that podcast I posted about tribalism. Yep. Um, everyone's got an opinion and I'm not posting that stuff to change people's opinion. I'm posting it because it's stuff that I'm interested in. That I think other people might be interested in. And if, they, if they like it, great. Um, if not, great. I don't, I don't really care. Um, what they do with it is in, entirely up to, to them. So it's almost like, a, for me, it's almost been like a, a diary. Um, I've posted things and I've I've gone back many many times to to post that I've subsequently forgot about forgotten about and thought this is this is brilliant this is really good it's clinically useful and relevant and pass that that on to the the students so um, for me when I came through physio in um, 10 11 12 social media as it exists now didn't exist then and so much of what I've learned and the beliefs that I have now have come from people like yourself and people all around the world that are, are sitting in conferences, posting tweets or they're sharing articles or they're talking about something that's in print on a, on a podcast. And it, it's, it's overwhelming trying to, to stay current. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge is there's so much out there that you can't stay current, even if you wanted to. Um, so it's more just me, me sharing rather than wanting to, to engage. And I, and I see, the the arguments and the discussions that you know that they're not going to go anywhere it's two people that are head to head and they have different differences of opinion and i i just don't i don't have the time or desire to to get engaged in that i'd love to have a conversation with somebody and me be educated at the end of it and and be better off um i do feel quite uncomfortable with the fact that there's thousands of people now following this page and asking me for my opinion and taking that as gospel because I, I, I don't want people doing that. I, I'd rather say, this is what I believe and this is why you go out there, have a look and you make your own mind up um, based on what you find. So, no, it's, been, well, it's been interesting. <laughs> no, I think I says it's one of my favourite uh, social media pages. So uh, for the listeners, if they're not following your page already, how do they find your stuff? It's just the, the Kettlebell Physio on Facebook. That's where I'm generally the most active. I used Instagram as well. Um, if you look for the Kettlebell Physio, you'll, you'll find it. The logo is fairly, fairly obvious. There's, <laughs> there's nothing on Instagram that isn't on, on Facebook. So Facebook's probably the, the main point of contact. Fantastic. And I'll put all those uh, details in the show notes as well. So mm -hmm. 
Must thank you very much to Kettlebell Physio, Neil May, for joining us on the 21st Century Physio podcast today. Lots of great knowledge, great tips about uh, for, you know, uh, people who are looking to go into business potentially or maybe already running their business as well as maybe going and doing some further education and study uh, in the 21st century. So some great tips. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you. Cheers, mate. That's another 21st Century Physio podcast, proudly brought to you by Matt, innovators and world leaders in movement assessment technologies that bring your practice into the 21st century. For more great information and tips to bring your practice into the 21st century, head over to www.podcast.physio. Lastly, if you love the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate and give a review on iTunes. It's very much appreciated. See you on the next episode.